The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, March 7th, 2017 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Should be a good show today. Well, we have Mary producing it. I bounce some ideas off Margaret. She sits behind me. She's always a font of information. A lot of the information I'm getting online about healthcare. That's from Margot Sanger Katz and Sarah Cliff. So I've got to cram in all this advice and all this expertise today because tomorrow will be the day without a woman. Now, I know a lot of women are taking this day off in solidarity. They're expecting me days or maybe she days. But let's say these women are planning to go on their womanly rounds to get some fierce errands done. But then when they go to the stores, what happens? No staff. It's a day without a woman. Following occupations will suffer on a day without a woman. Dental hygienist, home health aide, preschool teacher, WNBA point guard. The following occupations will not be severely affected. Rodeo clown, mining machine operators, brick mason, stone mason, and block mason, Wyoming state senator, network talk show host. Here is the actual deal. Don't let all my snark, my man snark, my smark get in the way about this day. I literally had not heard about the day without a woman before today. Then again, I'm not a woman. The element of surprise might have been a key element. Maybe I wasn't supposed to hear about it. But I sense that this day without a woman might be a surprise to the actual women who are supposed to be going full Lysistrata, though, of course, in the translation from the Greek to the American, the idea of a general sex strike just becomes a general work strike. The real injustice here, well, the real injustice, that's to, you know, reproductive rights and Planned Parenthood and all that stuff. But the real injustice here is because of branding. Talk about overpromising. A day without a woman? Wait, I saw one woman on a crosstown bus. You people are a bunch of liars. Maybe the day without a woman organizers thought that no one would break ranks. You know, now that Kellyanne Conway's been kneecapped, there's no one to show up and ruin a day without a woman by being a woman. But there are many others who are actually going to show up to work. I've asked around. It's true. And when you get down to it, don't you need some of these women to show up? Don't you want them to show up? Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski. They could have a lot to say about the health care law. Oh, by the way, there's only one woman who has a talk show, Samantha Bee, and it airs on Wednesdays. The day without the thing, the million man, woman, person, phlebotomist, march thing. It sounds great when you throw it on Facebook for the first time. It's going to be a rallying cry. That's the idea. But then when it actually happens or doesn't happen, it plays like the sad trombones when it underdelivers. On the show today, healthcare, the rollout, the blowback. But first, one of the great nonfiction writers of our day is by to tell the story of two thinkers who made us rethink almost everything.
Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky were two Israeli psychologists who thought differently from those who came before him, those in their field at the time, and even to a small but vital degree from each other. Out of their research came the field of behavioral economics. They not only gave the right answers, they knew to ask the right questions. That's a hallmark of original thinkers. Michael Lewis, in his new book, The Undoing Project, A Friendship That Changed Our Minds, examines the nature of their thinking about thinking. So gone was the idea that people took risks based on rational outcomes. Kahneman and Tversky showed that risk aversion plays a much bigger role than we thought. We think of ourselves as making good predictions, but the pair proved that our ability to predict was terrible, relies on mental shortcuts rather than past evidence. Even our understanding of randomness, they showed, wasn't like how true randomness operates. Michael Lewis is here. Hello. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. Of all the rules of thumb that they studied, did they ever find one that's, yeah, we're pretty good at that? <laughs> well, you know, no, no, and there's a reason for that. Because they had always, they'd started from the premise that the interest is in the mistakes, mm-hmm. in the mistakes people made. And they had started that way because Danny, who had been a student of perception, Uh, When you study the eye, you study optical illusion. When you study the ear, you study the the auditory uh, illusion. You you study mistakes that the ear and the eye, that the senses make. And they took that approach to the mind. They said they were looking for the mistakes the mind makes. So they 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 weren't looking for what the mind did well. They were looking for what it didn't do well. And so they didn't find what the mind did well. So when Kahneman was very early in his career with the army, he was essentially exploding stereotypes because they had an idea of what made a good gunner and what made a good pilot. And he found out none of that was true. Kahneman was actually doing practical work in the world that they would then build theories about. And the the practical work was he is a 22-year-old recent graduate of Hebrew University who has basically taught himself psychology and is very oddly put in charge of trying to fix the is the selection system for Israeli officers. This is in the early 50s, and the Israeli army had perceived that the wrong people were winding up in leadership jobs. They just had, they had big, big problems in morale and in the quality of the leadership. And the way they, were, they had been selecting officers was essentially the way, I don't know, baseball selected baseball players <laughs> 30, 25 years ago. Did they it go was, with the good scouts. face? The scout saying yes. has the good face? It was, it, exact, that kind of thing. It, it, was, it was the intuitive judgment of supposed experts, of people mm-hmm. who could kind of look at, look at a guy do something and say, oh, yeah, he's an officer. And Danny came in and replaced that process with an algorithm. He identified five or six traits he thought were important in an officer. He found ways to quantify them and try to measure them in people. And he, and he distributed, the, and he gave everybody, all the young men in Israel at the time, the, the test, and distributed the young men in the army with his algorithm. Now, it's money ball for soldiers. And the amazing thing about this, this algorithm, the algorithm generated a score for each kid, which is to this day called the Kahneman score. The Israeli army to this day uses Danny's algorithm to decide who's going to be an officer. I visited uh, the Israeli army base where they administer these tests with Danny and I listened to them talk about how they tried to fiddle with the, the algorithm and they always made it worse so they just kind of kept it. So yes, and what that does when you move away from the intuitive judgment of supposed experts and go to an algorithm is all of a sudden you start finding that 
it's not always the person who kind of looks the way an officer is supposed to look who's going to make a good officer. And by the way, the parallels between the Oakland A's with the subject of Moneyball and Israel, as you're saying this, they're so apparent. They have to be scrappier. They have to be smarter. They don't have all the resources. They operate in a bad neighborhood without a lot of natural resources. The Israeli army in the early 50s is the Oakland A's of armies. That's absolutely true. And you know what's also interesting is that the New York Yankees of armies, just like the New York Yankees and the Boston Red Sox, took note of what the Oakland A's had done and basically started to adopt their approach to to, uh, evaluating baseball players. Uh, The United States uh, military, the Pentagon, in the early 80s, called up the chief psychologist of the Israeli army and said, we need you to come in here. And when he got there, they said that he was facing all the top generals in the army. And they said, you know, we've been watching your army and you have the same guns and the same tanks and the same planes as we do. You have all the same stuff, but you outperform us dramatically. And we think that what's going on is the way you're actually allocating your personnel decisions, how you're allocating the people. What are you doing? And he told them about the algorithm. Uh, There are striking parallels. So I want to ask you about heuristics, these rules of thumb that we so often get wrong. And as I think about it, I think that I understand why they exist. Um, They worked well for the first few millennia of human existence. Fear of foreigners and making quick judgments and stereotypes allowed us to, whatever, evade the saber-toothed tigers and evolved. Do you think that it's just that modernity has outstripped the pace of evolution? We haven't been able to evolve fast enough to think correctly? When we are all fully evolved, we'll all be Nate Silver. <laughs> that was a compliment. That, that, that everybody will one day be like, think about the world, the world the way Nate Silver thinks well, about the Well, or world. the other I, way of I, looking at it is if the world weren't so dang complicated that we would get by pretty well with these rules of thumb. I think that's right. I think that's right. I think we get by kind of okay with the rules of thumb. And so what, what's happened in the last 50 years, the ever-cheapening che- of computing power has meant that you can actually – you have something to substitute for the rules of thumb. I mean, Moneyball doesn't exist if you don't have a computer. It just wouldn't have happened uh, because the statistical analysis would have been too cumbersome to perform. And so not only would you not have something to replace the old rules of thumb and the old, old baseball expertise – you wouldn't have had a check on it. The check on it is the statistical analysis that shows that the way that the rules of thumb went wrong, the evolution of technology has pointed out the weaknesses in human judgment. And it isn't that all human judgment is horrible. It's just that it it is prone to these certain kinds of mistakes. And it, there are lots of cases where you can do better if you lean on statistics. Do you think, and I have a theory about this, but do you think that common sense negatively correlates with good decisions or has almost no correlation? That's funny. But how do you measure common sense? When well, you say common sense, what do you mean? The, the gut reaction. I'm going to go with uh, what seems apparent to me, almost instinct. Well, here's what I think. I think that, I don't know if this answers the question, but I think it might, is that uh, there is a negative correlation between the self-certainty of the person making the decision Mm -hmm. and the quality of the decision. That better decisions come from people who are aware of the fallibility of their own decision-making equipment. And when people are very, 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 very sure of themselves is when they're most prone to mistakes, to really big mistakes. So if I'm looking for a decision-maker in my life, I like diffidence. I don't need their self-confidence to buck me up. It actually does the opposite. 
it undermines my faith in them. I like them to understand that the world is an uncertain place and that even the best decision maker, sometimes they'll be wrong. I think the common sense actually serves us well most of the time, helps us not get hit by cars and take candy from strangers and so forth. But the more complex... You don't take, can- you don't take candy from strangers? Well, it depends on the cut it. of the stranger's you jib, mean, if they you have a stranger face. <laughs> Are you telling me you never did Halloween? <laughs> oh my God, you're right. But I didn't get you're hit right, by yeah. cars while trick-or-treating. So, <laughs> But if you'd ever try that trick-or-treating thing on any other day about October 31st, it's, it's very fraught. So, uh, common sense is not bad, but the more complex the system is, the less it helps. And I'm extremely suspicious when there is uh, an ongoing legitimate argument on both sides, specifically political argument, and one side uh, tries to bolster its its side of the argument by appealing to common sense. That I I have found has has a had a huge negative correlation. I'm extremely suspicious of that. Well, I do agree that the more complicated the environment, the less you can rely on just kind of gut instinct. That's I think that's fair. And you see uh, Kahneman Tversky like thinking or criticisms of the supposed experts having um, found traction yeah. in complicated environments like medicine and finance. There are not many hedge fund managers now who are not at least vaguely aware of this guy's, these guys' work and aware that, that it raises a, a pretty valid criticism of what a hedge fund manager is doing. I think the, big, the whole movement away from active management and money management towards indexing, they're in the mix of the conversation about why that happened. You, you talk doctors now when they're trained, they are exposed to, they may not hear the words Kahneman and Tversky. They're taught about biases and heuristics when they're in medical school. I think you're right that the more complicated the environment, the more likely that intuitive judgment is going to lead you astray. Knowing that, knowing maybe have if you read Kahneman's book, if you read your book, um, if you're just interested and realize that uh, our minds play tricks on us and humans are irrational... If you're not in the right field, that might not help you. That could be more of a curse than a blessing. So much of our thinking is irrational. Does that really help you in life or does that only help you if you're lucky enough to be in a position where it can help? It helps you if you're running the Oakland A's, it really helps you. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you're running a professional sports team and making those kind of decisions, it really helps you. I don't see why it shouldn't help you if you're making other kinds of asset allocation decisions. The problem for Wall Street generally is that it's completely dependent on the idea that there's such a thing as like stock picking expertise when there's an awful lot of evidence that there's not. There are a lot of people who would prefer the weaknesses of human judgment. A lot of people on Wall Street would prefer that the weakness of human judgment not be a topic of conversation. Uh, a subplot in Danny and Amos's work is how people see patterns in what are essentially random phenomena. And that's what goes on Wall Street all the time. P- people are uh, able to seem as if they have an expertise in picking stocks because they've been right a few times, when in fact what's going on is a largely random event. It's not good for the financial industry as a whole that Kahneman and Tversky exist. Mm. It's very good for people who are trying to preserve their savings to understand what Kahneman and Tversky are trying to say. Well, that's why the book's called The Undoing Project and why the cover shows an eraser with all the eraser shavings next to it and why its author is Michael Lewis. I don't know about the last part is the why, but its author is Michael Lewis. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And now the spiel. 
Paul Ryan and House Republicans have unveiled their American Health Care Act. This claims to be a thorough negation of the Affordable Care Act, as if to say, not affordable, Obama didn't care, so we had to act. That's the message, but some, even some within the Republican Party, aren't buying it. Fox interviewed several Republican lawmakers and found a divergence of opinion. Rand Paul on Fox and Friends used the label that stuck to this legislation. This is Obamacare light. It will not pass. Conservatives aren't going to take it. Not since the cloture vote to halt the taste great, less filling debates of the 98th Congress was there such an argument over the light labeling of legislation. Republican Kevin Brady, House Ways and Means Committee chairman, was asked about the legislation by the host of Fox News Channel's special report with Brett Baer. Yeah, it is Obamacare gone. Oh, Obamacare gone. I soon expect Budweiser to start developing not just Bud Light, but Bud Light gone. It's like Bud Light, but with no calories and no carbs. Okay, it's an empty bottle of Bud Light. But you'd be surprised there's not that much of a fall off in terms of flavor. Anyway, a number of conservative groups were not convinced about the bill's potency to do what they want. The Cato Institute, a think tank that is to market conservatism, what MTV is to teen moms, went further than just calling it Obamacare light. A headline said, House GOP leadership's health care bill is Obamacare light or worse. Oh, it's worse. It's Obamacare Zima. A huge rollout, maximum awareness, lots of hype, but consumers are going to hate it. Though consumers might not get to it because yet another Republican legislator, David Bratt, was on yet another Fox show, the Fox Business Channel's Neil Cavuto Coast to Coast, and his political analysis led the aggressively quaffed Cavuto to conclude, eh, forget all this hubbub, the bill's done for. You know, Congressman, there are 40 members in your House Freedom Caucus, I think. How many of them, as things stand right now, would vote against this in the House? Oh, a vast majority, plus the House Study Committee has 170 members. So that, so would even, be, that, by, yeah. that would be defeated in the House, let alone worrying about the two or three yeah. Republicans who might peel off in the Senate, right? So this is right. and there's some dead on arrival. Well, I don't know about that. The Freedom Caucus can hold their breath until they're blue dog Democrats. I don't see how they're going to get a better bill than this. Their initial caterwauling was going to happen anyway. What it does is it signals their most fervent supporters. It doesn't mean that some can't be peeled off for a final vote. And the same thing's true about Republicans in the Senate. Rand Paul and Mike Lee already are adamantly opposed to the bill. Okay, that brings the vote total to 50 Republican senators. Cruz, Murkowski, Collins, they can now play spoilers. But this whole idea of the headcount, it's getting ahead of ourselves. We do need some time to digest the bill, to pass it through our small intestine, to see if there is a blockage, to see that we're covered for that. Let's see if the CBO is even allowed to score it. The Republicans are resisting the Congressional Budget Office putting any actual numbers to the bill. That is never a good sign. How much faith can you have in your legislation if you don't let an unbiased arbiter give actual dollar estimates? And finally, think of all the wild cards that could pop up in the next few days and weeks that we can't even anticipate right now. These will become the anecdotal flashpoints. Some might be inaccurate, like death panels. Some will be accurate, like this bill obliterates the ceiling that the ACA set in place for healthcare CEO pay. That could cause a backlash. But now we've got to wait. We've got to see how this battle shakes out to see if the repeal of healthcare will, as promised, quote, expand choice, increase access, lower costs, 
and at the same time provide better health care. Or if it turns out, on the other hand, that achieving that goal is something nobody knew could be so complicated. And that's it for today's show. Mary Wilson produced the gist. She will not be here tomorrow. She's honoring the day without a Mary. Chris Berube produced the gist today. He, much of the NHL, and the consortium of handsomest world leaders apparently thinking of taking tomorrow off, day without a Canadian. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. He just gives and gives, but you'll miss him when he's gone. The story is all foretold in the year without a Santa Claus. Andy Bowers is chief content officer of the Panoply Network. Yeah, now he is, but he's thinking of calling in sick tomorrow just to honor the spirit of the day without a chief content officer of the Panoply Network. The gist, apparently the programmers at the Lifetime Network for Women are not playing along with the proposed A Day Without, Not Without My Daughter. Oompru depru dupru, and thanks for listening. You listen to podcasts, I have proof of that. You're a living proof. And all this month, what we're doing is we're asking you to evangelize a little bit for us, but in a very practical way, one-to-one, contact. Tell a friend about a podcast I love. Doesn't have to be a friend, can be your mom. I don't want to get into your relationship with your mom. Could be a good one, could be an okay one, but at the very least, you can either delight her and feel good about it, or distract her with some podcast she'll like. But it has to be, hey, let me have your phone, let me tell you how podcasts work, if that's the state of things, or let me orient you and download an actual podcast on an actual app. So just contact this friend, this mom, this person you care about in real life or on social media, you know, which is like the new version of real life. And if they don't know about podcasts, show them about podcasts. So think of the person in your life who has specific interests that you know of. Think about a podcast with those interests. Ask yourself, does the person listen to those podcasts? If the answer is no, get them to listen to that podcast. And then tell your story again, maybe in real life. This one we don't care about. This part we care about the social media. Tell your story in social media, like say Twitter, with the hashtag tripod, T-R-Y-Pod. So, you know, got my mom to listen, and now we're actually on speaking terms. T-R-Y-Pod. And thank you for spreading the word.